Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. You're welcome to Supercharge with me, Anna Geary. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope you're having a lovely, lovely weekend. Now let's get going because I have a jam-packed show for you this evening. Wait until you hear this. So I came across this recent national survey and it was actually only done last year. The reason I bring it up is because it's actually relevant to what we're going to talk about on the show. So this affects a minimum of 13% of the Irish population. That's more than 1 in 10. What am I talking about? chronic pain look I've never experienced severe or chronic pain long term short term I I don't know what it's like and I can't imagine having to live in continuous pain day in day out but the reality is thousands of people in Ireland live in a constant state of pain for some of them it can be excruciating and a few people have already been in touch to share their stories When I wake up some mornings, I don't know if I'll be able to walk when I get out of bed till I put one foot in front of the other. An illness like psoriatic arthritis, this is one of these invisible illnesses, so I physically don't look like there's anything wrong with me, so that can be sometimes frustrating. Very isolating as people can become uncomfortable if you talk about how much pain you're in and it is hard to remain upbeat and in good form when in a lot of pain. But unfortunately, I have never been fully pain-free, but I have a threshold that I consider my normal, which I have accepted. Like imagine not knowing every day what your pain is going to be like. like that's heartbreaking. Like sciatica, arthritis, migraine, fibromyalgia, back and neck pain. Like these all fall under the banner of chronic pain and that's just touching the surface. This evening, we're going to learn more about chronic pain, about the different conditions and symptoms and how it can impact on the quality of life for so many. And also we'll talk about new emerging treatments. Our pain expert is going to be here to answer your questions too. So feel free to text in on 51551 or email us at supercharged at rte.ie. Now, later in the show, we'll also be talking about the symptoms of stroke and how to act fast. And Hugh Hick is going to drop in and talk to us about some interesting health stories of the week. That's all to come in the next hour. Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. For many people, chronic pain isn't just something they have to endure. They have to change their way of living just to manage it, from their working lives to how they perform minor daily tasks. And this was very much the case for Pam Duggan, who was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis seven years ago. And Pam joins me now in studio. Pam, thank you for joining us on Supercharged. My pleasure. Can you take me back to the first time that you remember having an issue? Like, when was that and what was it like? Pain started for me in 2014. As the year went on, it it kind of escalated until eventually um, I ended up going to see a rheumatologist in January of 2015 because I was finding that I had really bad lower back pain. I had hip pain and uh, he ran a battery of tests on me. And then two months later, he uh, diagnosed me with the very catchy seronegative inflammatory arthritis. Oh, wow. It it basically, it means that I was negative for um, the thing that you'd normally find in blood tests for rheumatoid arthritis. So I didn't have that, but it wasn't 100% sure at the time what kind of arthritis I had. It was just inflammatory. And can you tell me about the diagnosis part? Because often for a lot of people, that is a very challenging experience to get a diagnosis. And and 
people can be waiting a long time to get a diagnosis. So long. I was so lucky. I was diagnosed as quickly as I was. Um, I, I paid to see a rheumatologist privately because I knew at the time, that was seven years ago, the waiting list was humongous, never mind what it's like now. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my rheumatologist was great, went through a battery of x-rays, blood tests, physical exams until eventually he said, well, not 100% sure exactly which type of inflammatory arthritis you have, but you definitely have it. Like, can I ask, what was going through your mind when you're hearing a diagnosis like that? That I couldn't have that because I was only 35. Okay, yeah. I just thought, yeah, old people get arthritis. Mm. I'm only 35. I, I don't get arthritis. I'm only 35. But it's a lot more common than people think. So how then did it start affecting your life? I managed for a long time uh, with work and I even managed to go back to college. I got my degree in uh, media production management in Ballyfermot, but it's gotten to a point where it was really this year, it just, it escalated to the point where I just, I couldn't continue my normal life anymore. I had to take a break from work. I had to close my my little dog walking business. Physically, I just, I just wasn't able for it anymore. I mean, that has to be such a shock to completely turn your life you know, on its on its head. And I would imagine not just physically, but socially, emotionally, mentally, like there's there's so many different changes that have to take place. There's a, there's a big thing that people don't talk about when you're diagnosed with a, a condition like that and, and that you have to deal with a chronic pain is the grief that you feel for the life that you thought that you would have. It has to change. It, you have to make changes or else you're just not going to sustain any kind of life, big or small. It's it, it's the brain factor. I mean, you can kind of deal with the pain, but the brain thing of having to ameliorate your expectations for your life was a tough one to deal with. That the things that I really, really wanted to do, that I planned to do, probably weren't going to happen in the same form that I'd hoped. So... How do you go about revising your expectations for the life that you're going to live? Like, how can you turn that around? When I know, I will let you know. <laughs> no, and I think <laughs> I'm like, still working. It's a work in progress. Yeah, that's such an honest thing to hear you say because I can I can't begin to imagine what it would be like. Like nobody knows what's going to happen in life, but mm-hmm. when you do have a diagnosis that's thrown at you completely out of the view at a young age, and suddenly you have to live your life in a different way. Like, even from a practical point of view, like, what changes have you had to make? Uh, I have a, a very attractive step stool come step ladder that I have in my kitchen for when I'm cooking because I have to sit down to cook these days because I can't stand for too long. Yeah. Um, I have a, a little portable stool that I can bring with me. It's a real cool little rainbow-coloured expansion thing. You can pull it out and, and it's portable. Um... I suppose as well as the physical things that I've had to put in place for myself, I've had to put mental boundaries in place for myself. You do spend a lot of time thinking about, you spend a lot of time thinking about yourself, which sounds kind of selfish, but to be selfless, you kind of have to be selfish. Mm -hmm. You have to, you have to learn about pacing. You have to learn what you can do one day that will allow you to do something the next day but may not allow you to do the thing that you really want to do. It's the things that you have to do. So you could do maybe three things in one day, but not the fourth thing, because the fourth thing might push you into a flare. Okay. There's a lot of reconstruction of your life. That a lot has of restraint and control that comes yes, with that too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So may I ask as well, like, how do you talk to people, your friends and family about this on days where you might be experiencing severe pain or maybe on days you just don't want to do anything? 
Can you talk to people and how would you talk to people? I'm so lucky. My friends and family are great. As as time has gone on, as I've gotten older, I've found that a lot of my friends have also themselves developed long-term conditions. So there's a club of us that get it. Mm-hmm. And my family's real supportive. Uh, my parents and um, I have a brother as well. And I, I, I'm sort of stranded in a sense in that I live in Dublin. I'm from Tipperary originally. My family are in Tipperary still, but still only at the other end of the phone. Mm-hmm. So... I wish they were closer, but, you know, I have I have a good bunch behind me. I'm lucky. Some people don't have that. They have the kind of family or friends who look at them and go, but you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. How come you were able to do the thing yesterday that you can't do today? What's that about? What, what must that be like? Because that can be quite dismissive or maybe people, you know, don't understand because, like you said, they're not fully experiencing it or living with chronic pain, but... How do, you, how do you cope with that? But it makes you, it makes you question yourself. There's, there's sort of a form of gaslighting to it. <laughs> it, it makes you think, wait, is, is the pain really as bad as I, I think it is? Why can't I do more? And then you try and push yourself and you do more and then you find that you have to spend another couple of days after that in bed because it has caused a flare-up of pain in your hands or pain in your feet or pain in your back mm-hmm. or, you know, even where even taking a shower is a struggle. Thinking about taking a shower is a struggle. Never mind actually having one. So... What has been, would you say, the most significant or even challenging aspect of your condition on your day-to-day life? I know you're quite a high achiever. The, yeah, yeah, to my detriment. Um, the thing that I miss most after my chronic pain diagnosis was, it, it's, it's not even the fear factor of what the future might bring, considering this year has seen an escalation in my pain overall, which I wasn't expecting, but I miss my brain. Chronic pain... Mm, it, it it messes with your brain. It causes brain fog. You can't think straight. You forget words. I once forgot what the word for a fork was. I had the fork in my hand and I couldn't, re- I couldn't remember what the name of this thing was. Mm-hmm. Utensil. Eating type thing. Could not remember for the life yeah. of me what the name of it was. I once forgot how to drive while I was driving. Oh God. I can laugh now. It wasn't very funny at the time. Um, oh my God, that's extremely it was, scary. It was scary, yeah. yeah. I, it kicked back in after a few seconds but it was the longest few seconds of my life. I miss reading. I miss being able to watch TV shows that are longer than half an hour because yeah. I just don't have the concentration anymore. It's what brain fog does to your brain. That must be so difficult. Like, can I just ask you, what would you say to anybody like who's going through something similar to you now? Or was there anything that you wish you knew um, at the beginning that might help somebody listening? Uh, my my cousin is a doctor and she told me one of the truest, truest things that I've heard um, after being diagnosed with chronic pain. And she said, um, brain fog, as the words float away from me. Mm-hmm. The time when you need to fight the hardest is unfortunately the time that you're least able to. And it's it's terrible because you're weak and you're tired and you just want things to be easy. But sometimes you have to fight and you just don't have the strength to fight. So Mm -hmm. if you don't have the strength to fight, find an advocate, get a partner, a friend, someone to come with you to doctor's appointments, hospital appointments who will have your back and who will stand up for you when you're least able to stand up for yourself. Pam. Honestly, thank you so much for sharing your story. You're I welcome. Wish you so well. And like you said, like chronic pain isn't something that 
every one of us can understand and it's so difficult to fully understand unless you live with it. So being empathetic and listening to those is is really, really important and, and hopefully your story is going to provide some comfort for people listening and like you said, have your advocates and just know that you're not alone. So Pam, thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. Coming up now, I'll have an expert in studio to answer your pain question. So if you have a question, please send it in to 51551. Supercharged with Alec Geary on RTE Radio 1. So we are talking about chronic pain on this evening's show and some of you have been reaching out to share your experiences. Hi Anna, I live with chronic pain caused by Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome which affects the connective tissues in the body causing painful joints, ligament pain, widespread musculoskeletal pain, syringomyelia, headaches, chronic back pain, etc. Living with pain is very difficult as it affects every aspect of your life and causes difficulties with day-to-day tasks and daily living and impacts everything, your ability to work, socialise, relationships, self-esteem and very isolating as people can become uncomfortable if you talk about how much pain you're in and it is hard to remain upbeat and in good form when, when in a lot of pain. Hi Anna, so I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis five years ago. It's an illness and condition that impacts the joints of my body. So I suffer with inflammation and stiffness and quite a lot of fatigue. Um, I suppose the challenges over the last five years um, is in particular during a flare-up where I'd have constant pain or I'd feel constant fatigue. And a challenge with an illness like psoriatic arthritis is one of these invisible illnesses. So I physically don't look like there's anything wrong with me. So that can be sometimes frustrating. I work with a great rheumatologist in Dublin. We have a plan that manages the pain and and the symptoms of the condition and exercise and setting goals have been hugely important. Ran a marathon twice over the last five years. Hopefully I'll climb Kilimanjaro in February of next year. It's one of these illnesses. I'll always have it, but I try not to let it hold me back. So kind of take the good with the bad. Hi, Anna. I suffer from chronic pain due to rheumatoid arthritis and other conditions secondary to my arthritis. I was diagnosed when my second child was six months old. That's 16 years ago. I don't know until I wake up each day how I'm going to feel. But unfortunately, I have never been fully pain free. But I have a threshold that I consider my normal, which I have accepted. I'd take up your entire show if I tried to discuss the impact it's had on my life and my family. But what I will say is that my one wish is that medical professionals listen to their patients and believe them when they tell you they are in pain. Pain isn't fun and no one wants to be in chronic pain. These are life changing and ultimately like debilitating conditions. Thank you to everybody that's been sending in your voice notes. And joining me now is Dr. Paul Murphy, pain consultant at St. Vincent's Hospital. Paul, welcome to Supercharged. We're hearing from people about how severe severely affected their lives have been due to chronic pain. Oh, absolutely, Anna. Good evening. It's um, it's a dreadful condition and it's, it's a very prevalent condition in Ireland. Um, over the years, we've looked and done multiple studies and anywhere between 15 and, and 25% of the population suffer from chronic pain. And, and one of the things I think that came across in, in those um, excerpts is that it's often seen as an invisible disorder, that people will often look absolutely fine. Um, people, you don't know that they're suffering um, and often there's a deficit in people actually believing them. So people yeah. will often experience really severe pain and have difficulty convincing friends, family and even medical staff, as we heard there, to accept that they are suffering in chronic pain. Yeah, like, I mean, that has to be incredibly frustrating. But I think just to, to, to kick off our conversation, like to define what pain actually is and more specifically what chronic pain is. 
Well, pain is actually something that everybody assumes, or we assume that everybody knows what pain is because we all experience it at different part times in our life. Um, but pain actually has a very formal definition that it is an a unpleasant, obviously, um, sensory and emotional disorder. So there are those two important components to it. And it can be due to actual damage. So, for example, if we get a fracture or we cut our skin, we'll experience pain. It can be due to potential tissue damage, so something that might be going to dam damage us. Or it can actually just be expressed in terms of damage. Damage. And really what that means is that there doesn't have to be any underlying physical abnormality. So maybe there isn't a, a tumour or a fracture or some inflammatory condition, but the nervous system itself can function in such a way that people experience pain, that they experience it as, as if somebody had a broken leg, for example. And like a lot of the messages we're getting are from people suffering from back pain, arthritis, endometriosis, which we heard a lot about um, on Liveline this week. Mm -hmm. You know, what are some of the most common causes of pain that you see? As you said earlier, back pain, neck pain are by far the most common and um, it makes a lot of sense in that we're not really designed for our spines to last much later than 40 years and we're not really designed to be walking on two legs as opposed to four. And for is that, that because, reason, like we've, we're living for longer. The way we've evolved and we're living yes. for longer and, and our spines degenerate. And, and as they degenerate with time, we get a lot more wear and tear and we get a lot more pain. Uh, and, and that makes up well over 50% of everybody who has chronic pain. And then we see a lot of other conditions, the kind of chronic abdominal pains, um, endometriosis, chronic headache disorders, chronic migraines. So there's a lot of, a whole range of, of disorders, but um, the spinal stuff is by far the most common. And we were talking in the break, like I missed my cue because I was so engrossed with what you were saying about the impact that chronic pain can have on people's lives, like we're hearing from the voice notes that it can be so significant. But specifically, can you talk to us about the type of impact that can have on people's lives? Well, we see a lot of people who are using vast quantities of medications to try and control their pain, often failing to really control it adequately, finding that they get severe side effects from the medication, that they lose um, jobs, they lose relationships, their careers, and um, whole families get affected. So we'll often say that chronic pain just doesn't affect an individual, it will affect a whole family and also affect society as well. Um, so people really can, can be in an extremely difficult situation and when we're trying to manage it, because we have that separation of very often in medicine, we look at things as a, a cause, causes pain. We treat the cause and the pain goes away. And, and unfortunately, with chronic pain, that's usually not the way it is. That pain itself is the disease. And you mentioned about how chronic pain can be invisible. It can be you know, incredibly frustrating for people to, to really articulate and get people to understand what is, is going on in their lives. But what can people do if they feel their pain is being dismissed? Well, the first important thing is to find somebody who believes that you've got pain. And, and certainly there's a lot of pain, pain clinics around Ireland now at the moment. It's a really rapidly evolving specialty. Um, and we believe it. There's, there's no test that tells if somebody's got pain. So I can't scan somebody and say, here's a blood test or here's an MRI scan that tells me that you've got pain. And, and, and the bottom line is that if you tell me you've got pain, we believe you've got pain. And, and that's the first thing to do is find somebody who believes you've got pain. We always then try and see, is there something causing the pain? So that's when people will go through various tests like scans and MRIs and blood tests to try and identify, is there some condition underlying it? And people will often get extremely disappointed when they're sitting in the clinic and saying, well, all our tests are normal, all the scans are normal. And I say to everybody, that does not mean you don't have pain. It means you have pain, but we just haven't identified what the source is. And very often the source is just a change within the way the nervous system is working. And that's what we, what we have to fix, the nervous system as opposed to treat the cause.
Um, and, and what can the symptoms of chronic pain include? I'm sure there's there's lots of them, but what are they common? A whole range of different things. And, and people will often complain burning, shooting, stabbing, electric shock-like pains. There's a oh condition God. called dysesthesia, which is defined as a really abnormal, unpleasant sensation. So many years ago, the um, Irish Pain Society um, sponsored an art exhibition which was held in Temple Bar. And people who actually couldn't verbally express what their pain was would actually make artwork to try and express it. Oh, that's so powerful. And there were kind of... Um, I remember a sculpture in particular which was like barbed wire wrapped around somebody's leg on, on flames and that was the kind of sensation that their pain was. So, mm-hmm. so it can be quite difficult. And often in a clinic we will use various tools, various mm-hmm. questionnaires to just to try and prompt people and let them kind of even tick box answers to try and tease out exactly what the components of their pain are because different types of pain require different types of treatment and different types of investigations. And uh, speaking of, of, of questions, obviously we asked people if they wanted to send in their your their questions for you and they have been coming in. So I do believe we have an audio question here about food. Hi Anna, I'd love to know what foods are good for rheumatoid arthritis and what foods to avoid um, in terms of how it impacts my life. I have a 16 month old. There are some days where I can't lift him up. I don't know if I'll be able to walk when I get out of bed till I put one foot in front of the other. Um, I've described it as feeling like my ankles are made out of glass. Well, foods are, are really the important thing is just to have a very healthy diet, really as much as, as possible, a balanced diet. There aren't any particular um, food groups that we say are particularly useful. Um, we try and avoid highly processed foods really more than anything else. But apart from that, um, really, it's just really lead a healthy diet as much as possible. And I suppose for, for someone like that goes day after day and mightn't be able to lift their, their baby mm-hmm. out of you know the pram or the cotton is wondering what's today going to be like. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose they're just clinging to anything that might help them. They are. And one of the problems, as we said, with pain, it is a sensory and an emotional disorder. And people with chronic pain tend to develop what we call maladaptive responses, which means that the human body is not designed to have unrelenting pain. We're not designed to experience pain and not have any um, way of relieving it and not have any real light at the end of the tunnel. And because of that, people will often change the way they behave. And one tendency is that people tend to catastrophize, which is perfectly reasonable, um, that any twinge, any change in symptoms often changes people's interpretation of what's going on. And they will often fear the worst case scenario. Um, People will also tend to get into this pattern of overdoing and underdoing things. So, for example, if um, you've really bad pain on one day, they will often take it easy, maybe lie in bed. Next day, if they feel well, will often feel guilty about not being able to do anything like you know, lifting a child or doing housework. And then will often really throw themselves into activities and then crash again. So this kind of cycle of, of overactivity and crashing is quite prevalent as well. So for a lot of people who have difficulty just dealing with all those aspects of pain, um, getting engaged with a pain management program is often very useful. And we often look at things in conjunction with medical treatment, looking at physiotherapy, occupational therapy and clinical psychology as well to try and deal with all those aspects around the pain. So almost like it's like multidisciplinary. Multidisciplinary team, absolutely. And and that's really a critical part of it. And again, if we go back to that definition, it is that sensory and emotional components. So people don't just need a, a medication or an injection or an operation. They will very often need their whole life to be rehabilitated looking at things from a psychological angle, rehabilitating them that way, looking at the physical impact of the pain and trying to rehabilitate that as well. And, and pre-COVID, we, we often had family days where we'd actually bring family members in with the, with the people who were suffering from chronic pain just so they could actually experience what their, their, their family member was experiencing and meet other families who were also living the same life. 
Yeah, there's lots of messages that have come in about cures and treatments. People are mm. desperate to find ways to alleviate this chronic pain. So can we talk maybe about perhaps some new emerging treatments that might be happening as well? Well, it's a very rapidly evolving field. And, and I suppose with anybody who's got chronic pain, ultimately, um, right back at the start, you were asking what is what is chronic pain and what's the difference between chronic and, and, and acute pain. And, mm. and really, we take a kind of a three-month time scale and we don't just pluck three months out of the sky and say, well, let's call it chronic if it's more than three months. After three months, the nervous system begins to change. It just begins to change the way it functions at a, a molecular level. And anybody who's got chronic pain doesn't have the same type of nervous system that anybody who doesn't have chronic pain has. So therefore, very minor kind of stimuli that normally wouldn't cause pain in anybody else can provoke um, severe pain. So often if we're looking at emerging treatments, these are ways to try and reset the nervous system and try and return it back towards a more normal way of functioning. Um, so there are a lot of medications that try and uh, try and reduce the nervous system activity, try and restore it to normal. So drugs such as um, pregabalin or gabapentin are basically anti-epileptic drugs which try and settle it down. Um, we often use a lot of antidepressant drugs and people are often a little bit kind of uh, concerned when, they, when I tell mm -hmm. them I'm going to give you an antidepressant and we're often at pains to say this doesn't mean you're depressed, although people often have every reason to be depressed with their pain, mm -hmm. but it, it also helps restore and reset the nervous system down to normal. We have a lot of interventional approaches we look at as well where we can target specific nerves and specific nerve groups and again try and reset those by putting electrical stimulation onto the nerves and that can be either putting a little needle through the skin and just stimulating a particular nerve or in some instances implanting devices like a pacemaker into the spinal cord and scrambling the, the painful signal before it goes from the affected area up towards the brain because ultimately this signal has to pass up through the spine and hit the brain before somebody can experience pain. And so, so how do people then take part in, in these type of emerging treatments? Does it have to go, you know, through your GP and all the way to be referred? Like, how does it work for yeah, if somebody's usually, listening now and they're, this is music to their ears? Well, the, well, the best port of contact is all, or the first port of contact is always the GP. Mm -hmm. And then GPs are now very aware of, of what's going on in the pain world. And um, so they would know if the person has a suitable pain and where's the suitable clinics really to refer them on to. Uh, once people come in, we'll often assess them as part of that multidisciplinary process. And, and that's really just to identify what aspects require treatment. Is is there a, a physical or is there one of these new emerging approaches that might be useful for them? Um, or are they somebody who is going to do okay on, on standard medication but just needs some help around the kind of the physical and psychological rehab? And what about um, medicinal cannabis? Like we hear it a lot in the media, it gets quite a bit of attention. The evidence is, is modest at best and, and we have seen some people utilising it. Um, most of the evidence tends to suggest that people who use it recreationally prior to developing chronic pain get the best benefit. Um, but like most medications, it, it can often be useful but often on its own, it, the results aren't quite as spectacular as um, often portrayed. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're always used in medically controlled environments with medically trained Absolutely. professionals just to say that. Now, we do have an audio question that's come in about alternatives to medications. Have a listen. Hi, I suffer from Crohn's disease and I just want to find out when I get a flare up, rather than taking steroids, is there an alternative or a natural kind of remedy that I would be able to take to be able to make the flare-ups a little bit better and ease the pain. So one of the issues with Crohn's disease is you can have two problems. Obviously, the, it's, a, it's a bowel disorder, so people will often get very severe abdominal pain from a flare-up of Crohn's. But there is also a type of arthritis associated with it as well, and people can often get quite severe arthritic pain too. Um, steroids are essentially an immunosuppressant, and that's the way they're utilised in Crohn's. So really the only alternative 
would be to be on a different immunosuppressant medication, but that's obviously something that a, a gastroenterologist specialising in Crohn's would really best supervise. And speaking about medications, like like what about the potential to become dependent or even immune to pain medication? Well, that's that's a really important uh, question, and and um, a lot of people could put on strong painkillers mm-hmm. like morphine type medication and opioids, um, and we're really not designed as humans to really tolerate those very well for long periods. One of the things we will tend to see is that people will gradually increase their dose. And a lot of people will mix up tolerance, dependence and addiction as being kind of very similar things. Um, tolerance really just means that more of the medication is required to have the same painkilling effect. And that's a natural phenomenon that everybody sees. Uh, dependence is when somebody needs to take the medication. If, if we stop it, then the pain really flares up and gets it's out of control. But what happens when you use an opioid or a morphine type medication is that it changes the way your nerves work and with time and with persistent use it can actually start making your pain worse. So we will often see a lot of people who are taking very strong painkillers for many years, dreadful pain and the actual effect of treatment is to actually take them off the medication, take them off the opioids and we meet with the most incredible resistance obviously where people just mm-hmm. think it's so counterintuitive to suggest yeah. stop and the painkillers and your pain will get better mm-hmm. um, and they'll always come back afterwards and say this is incredible like it's um, I've stopped the medications my pain is better Okay, and we actually have um, an audio question in from a daughter asking on behalf of her mother This is a message on behalf of my mum. She is 64 years old and she is a sufferer of chronic restless leg syndrome. She first got restless legs aged eight and over the last 40 years, she would describe it as chronic pain. She has no quality of life as on average, she is only getting two hours of broken sleep a night. She would love to hear of new insights or remedies for chronic restless legs as currently she is describing it as horrendous. So restless legs is now considered a type of chronic pain disorder. And many Since years eight ago... eight years old. I mean, that's almost six decades mm. of experiencing it. And most people with chronic pain have had this for many years before they come to any medical attention. So it is very much a long, long-lasting condition. With restless legs, people would and years ago would often said try quinine and then quinine is in tonic water. So so people would often use this as an excuse for a gin and tonic to, to settle down the, the restless legs in the evening. Um, now simple medications, as we've said before, like pregabalin and gabapentin, which dampen down nerve activity, uh, can be effective. And muscle relaxing agents um, such as tizanidine and baclofen are also useful as well. But again, best, best dealt with in a specialist clinic. A message has come in. I have endometriosis and I'm in sixth year. I'm worried about being absent, but I can't control the pain. Any suggestions? So there's two ways to look at the endometriosis issue. Obviously, with um, endometriosis is um, sort of inflammation with um, the lining of the uterus, essentially outside the uterus and in the pelvic cavity, and and it can cause a lot of problems. So the first port of call is always to get in touch with a gynecologist and and look, because there are hormonal treatments that can be very effective in terms of reducing the endometriosis activity and also surgical treatments too. Um, If it's causing pain specifically and somebody's been through those treatments, um, there are options in terms of both medication and and even nerve block approaches. And and recently, a new pelvic pain clinic has actually been established in Hollow Street with with a colleague of mine who works in St. Vincent's as well. So um, that's a very useful um, resource to have. And I think just, you know, finally, the takeaway message for people, like what is it people suffering from chronic pain? Well, the first thing for people with chronic pain is that you are believed and that, that and even if scans and x-rays and all those tests are all normal, that does not mean that you don't have chronic pain that we always believe people do have. Uh, the best thing to do is get referred to a pain clinic. There are a huge range of assessments, evaluations and treatment options available. And really, um, everybody who's got chronic pain, that there is something that we can do for you. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Paul Murphy, pain consultant at St. Vincent's Hospital. And if you're in pain, you'll find more information on chronicpain.ie and also on arthritisireland.ie. Now, coming up, we'll learn some life-saving tips relating to stroke. And Hugh Hick is going to bring us some health stories of the week. Supercharged with Alec Geary on RTE Radio 1. One of the things that I've learned this week is that stroke is the third leading cause of death in Ireland. And in our experts chair today is someone who wants to change that statistic. Professor Ronan Collins is Director of Stroke Services at Talley University Hospital and Clinical Lead uh, for the National Stroke Programme. Thank you for joining us, Ronan. Like, Pleasure. You've come armed with some tips for us today to spot signs and ultimately to help prevent strokes. So like, what exactly is a stroke and why is it so important that we know? Well, in addition to being our third leading cause of death, and actually in the Western world or the developed world, it's probably becoming the second leading cause of death. But it's also the leading cause of acquired adult neurological disability. Um, And so it has a huge impact. We reckon that there's probably somewhere between 80 and 90,000 people living in Ireland with some form of disability after a stroke. Uh, And so this is clearly uh, a very significant uh, condition to happen to you. Now, thankfully, the treatment of stroke has been advancing and we've made great headway, both Mm -hmm. in terms of reducing mortality and indeed improving outcomes. But one of the factors we have no control over is people coming to hospital in time. And we do have a problem in the country, uh, particularly um, evident over the pandemic. Some of that, of course, would have been people fearful of coming to hospital, but less than half of our stroke patients come to hospital within three hours of the onset of a symptom. And that is the bit we need to try and change. And that's your first tip, isn't it? That idea of think fast. What does F-A-S-T so stand many, for? So many people remember the advert on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're planning to try and run it again soon uh, because it's clear when it was on, it had a good impact. Face, uh, F is for face. A means arm. Is your arm, are you able to hold your arm up or does it fall down? Speech, is there a disturbance in your speech? Both your ability to understand, your ability to express a word or it being slurred. Uh, And then uh, time uh, means don't hang around, don't second guess what it might be, don't think, oh, I just slept in my arm, that's why it's weak, or or my face is a bit funny, but, you know, maybe I didn't put my teeth in right or something Mm -hmm. like that. People come up with the most amazing kind of (laughs) explanations to explain away their symptoms. And I understand that because people very often do that when they're afraid. But what I want to encourage people to say is, please ring an ambulance and come if you have any of those symptoms occur to you and get into hospital quickly because we can change this. And in fact, we can very often now cure the stroke if we get it in time. So that was actually my next question is about the... Why is it so important to get in to hospital as quickly as possible? Well, so a stroke is caused by one or two things. If you can imagine, the brain is supplied by blood. The blood gets to the brain uh, pumped uh, Mm -hmm. down a series of pipes, arteries. And when stroke happens, when either the artery gets blocked in the brain or it ruptures in the brain. And in both those situations, we can now do things to improve the outcome in terms of a blockage in the brain if you think of a blocked drain outside your uh, back door uh, we can inject powerful drugs to try and dissolve the clot we can also if you like get the equivalent of a dyno rod and go down the pipe to extract the blockage Mm -hmm. in terms of a ruptured blood vessel we're still making progress there but again control of blood pressure to tight parameters improves outcomes and good acute stroke unit care will improve your outcomes as well so it's very important that people do get the hospital in time. Nobody's going to criticise you if it wasn't a stroke. Mm-hmm. 
Certainly. Do you know what I mean? But but you really aren't helping yourself if you don't get yeah. the hospital so in time. Time really is of the essence to be yeah. there within three hours of the onset of symptoms. Now, your next tip relates to warning signs. You said don't ignore the TIAs. What are they? So TIAs are, some people refer to them as mini strokes, but TIAs are a warning sign. It very often will be the same symptom. It may be very transient, lasting a minute or so. Again, it may be facial weakness. It may be disturbance in sensation or weakness in your arm or leg. Uh, it may be a disturbance in speech uh, and it may also be disturbance in vision where there's a sudden, a sudden loss of vision in the one eye or what appears to be a one eye because it could be your field of vision. But the thing about stroke is that the onset is always sudden and that's where the word kind of originally came from, from originally apoplexy in, in Greek. Uh, apoplexy, in fact, was the old English word for stroke and plesin really? meant to strike. And so that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. There's an alternative explanation for the people who are interested in the classics out there that it might have come from ictus, nichara, Latin, uh, to strike. But it's the suddenness is mm-hmm. the bit I wanted to get across. Stroke symptoms happen sudden because the pipe blocks suddenly or it ruptures suddenly. So let's talk then about the risk factors that actually can, um, I suppose, have a, a stroke um, occur in, in people. Like, what are those risk factors? Well, of course, I'm sitting across from someone who tries to get her family's fit and, of <laughs> course, is a sports person herself. So obviously, not being physically active mm-hmm. is a big risk factor. Um, smoking and overuse of alcohol, those lifestyle measures, everybody pays them lip service, but they're very important things to you know, to address in your own life. Uh, and then in addition to that, I say if I was to pick one other thing in particular, I would say people should know what their blood pressure is. Uh, because, again, knowing your blood pressure earlier on in life will not only reduce your risk of damaging the pipes and therefore causing a stroke, mm-hmm. but blood pressure very often is the common theme behind a lot of the illnesses that happen to us as we get older. So, really? for example, if we had tighter blood pressure, there'd be less brain damage. You'd reduce your instances of dementia or chance of dementia. If you had... Uh, well-controlled blood pressure, you reduce the pressure on your pumps, so you have less chance of developing heart failure. If you've well-controlled blood pressure, you have less chance of damaging your kidneys and even the back of your eyes and blindness. So high blood pressure is probably the one thing. If I was if I was Minister for Health mm-hmm. and I was investing tenor in something, it would be investing it in blood pressure in people in their early midlife. How often should people be checking their blood pressure? Well, I think once you hit around 40, I think, and maybe younger if there's a strong family history of premature heart disease, but I think once you hit that age around 40, 45, you really should know what your blood pressure is at least. And then, you know, having your blood pressure checked with your own doctor, your own doctor then will be able to guide you as to how often it should be done. Because if it's if it's categorised as like pre-hypertension, they'll keep a closer eye. If it's relatively good, you may not come back for kind of 18 months or so for another check, so to speak. And from an age point of view then, like how... how I suppose, what are, what's the age group that is most susceptible? Can anybody get a stroke of any age? Or Yes, that's a very good question. Predominantly, if you think about the pipes and even the pipes in your house, obviously the longer you're, or the older your house is, the longer you're living, the yeah. more likely you're going to get the diseases that result in stroke or damage the pipes. Uh, but about a quarter of our strokes do occur in younger people. And I suppose I would have seen a trend, particularly myself in my own work on a day-to-day basis over the last number of years, that I would be particularly concerned about and I would be amongst our um, uh, new, uh, relatively newly arrived population, uh, particularly young black males um, who tend to have high blood pressure and may not be aware 
uh, of the blood pressure because very often has no symptoms and of course with our immigrant population as well uh, they may not have access to general practice and primary care so I think that's something that we do need to address primary care is under huge pressure in this country as it is anyway and we really are going to have to tackle this because you know, for every missed opportunity in primary care it results in a much more expensive harder to reverse situation you know when someone gets older so if we all want to live healthier lives the investment must start when we're in our kind of in our early midlife so so far we're talking about acting fast timing of the essence mm-hmm. getting to the hospital within three hours you also about adjusting your lifestyle factors and then knowing your blood pressure and one other one i'm going to add in particularly is we're into this season the flu vaccine. There is very clear evidence from large international research done by my colleague Martin O'Donnell down in Galway that actually having the flu is an independent risk factor for for stroke. And so therefore getting the flu vaccine can also be protective. Thank you. And and finally, maintaining a good social network is one of your tips. What do you mean by that, Ronan? Well, I think it's very, well, number one, for your mood Mm -hmm. and for your sense of self-esteem and your general joy of life. And now that we can get back out and socialise again. It's very good to have a good social network. But there's also good evidence, I think, that in later life, that having developed a good and investing in a social um, network is cognitive cognitively protective. In other words, it protects your, if you like, your brain from deteriorating in terms of memory, language, uh, general mood, etc. So having a social network is just as important as exercising regularly. Professor Rona and Collins, thank you so much for coming in and delivering potentially life-saving tips for us. Of course, World Stroke Day is at the end of the month and the stroke support line is 01668 But the message, act fast and look out for the signs. Supercharged with Alec Geary on RTE Radio 1. And now Hugh Hick joins me in studio to bring us up to date on the health headlines from around the world. Hugh, what have you got for us this week? There is uh, where to begin, Anna. I think it's always begin, uh, good to begin with uh, something about bone health because it's something that I know a lot of parents, you know, always think about their kids and how do my kids get healthy bones? Mm-hmm. And it looks like there might be an answer this week, would you oh. believe? Uh, because uh, they've done some research into this and the question is, what is the best activity that my kid can get that can give them a robust, um, I guess, bone structure? And it turns out that uh, what they call multi-directional sports, you're talking about your footballs, your basketballs, the ones that get you, you know, moving around a bit. Mm-hmm. And these apparently are actually the ideal thing for your bones. Your bones love this, even more so than running and swimming. So what the researchers have been suggesting is rather than uh, getting the kids out just to do a bit of running or cycling, you should get them involved in these uh, these sports because what happens is it, it gives that really nice foundation for your bones. And that's what you want because part of what um, they did as part of this research is they uh, looked at female cross-country runners uh, who often experience bone stress injuries because you run long distances, mm-hmm. you're likely to, to put a lot of stress in that. And they found that if you have actually been involved in these activities that are multidirectional, it actually gives you just that extra robust uh, bone health, which will help you then when you go running marathons. I wish I knew this like 30 years ago because uh, my parents put me into cross-country running and let me tell you, I didn't particularly did, enjoy did, it. Did, did you have to do that in school, Anna? The long I, run. I did. I the long did, run. So. I have nightmares about the yeah. long run, Anna, I tell you. <laughs> so yeah, definitely that'll be um, welcomed news for some people. And I do believe that um, it sounds like there's been an incredible breakthrough for those at risk of dementia. This is an incredible story, Anna, and a really, really good uh, game changer news story this week. Because as 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 we come back to again and again on this show, Anna, the really important thing is. Um, 
catching these things early, mm-hmm. no matter what it is. And we even de- heard that with stroke, it's exactly, all relatively fast. Exactly. Uh, so uh, with dementia, that no more so the case than with dementia. But it's it's a tricky one to do. But they've actually done studies on this now, and they found out that you can actually see the the first signs of dementia up to nine years before when you might get Nine an official years. diagnosis. Nine years. So what they've done is they've run a number of tests uh, with a number of people involving problem solving, memory, reaction times and grip strength. And they found that they can actually detect those early, really early uh, signs of uh, dementia. And this gives them a baseline and they're able to follow this over a number of years. Mm-hmm. And this gives them uh, that sense. And this is something that can obviously be developed uh, hopefully into something that could be used on a more uh, broad scale but uh, certainly it's really really promising it's brilliant and you've been researching e-bikes tell us more oh I love my e-bikes Anna and I'm not the only one it turns out that e-bikes have just exploded since the pandemic you've probably seen them out and about Mm -hmm. Um, but the question that everyone seems to be asking is how good of a workout am I getting from an e-bike is it the same as I can get from my bike and they have now done the research on this as well. And You're smiling, so it must be goodness. Well, it's 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 the jury's still kind of out. I mean, as you might expect, because there is a motor uh, mm-hmm. powering the bike, you're not you're not going to get <laughs> quite the workout. Um, but I, I guess what the important thing is, it is getting people out on the bikes. True. And that is a very important first step. Uh, even assisted cycling is better than no cycling. Uh, but what they found is that people on a conventional bike do tend to still take more cycling trips, on average six a week, uh, as opposed to people who take e-bikes would take on average a four. Uh, they found that uh, generally if you're on a normal bike, your trips tended to be 25 minutes longer um, per week. However, individual trips uh, would be on, uh, on e-bikes would be longer. And for heart rate, it is slightly higher on conventional bikes, 119 BPM rather than 111. Now, finally, um, you have another TikTok hack that some people might be really welcoming. Yes, indeed. Now, I have to put a, a bit of a proviso on this. We uh, we cannot put uh, any, um, uh, any particular strength on, on any of the hacks we give out in this show, but... It has been ever since we've had health hacks, people have been looking for that holy grail, which is, you know, the hangover cure. And there is a pharmacist on TikTok, goes by the name Dr. Chris, who claims that he has found uh, a way that might help uh, take a little bit of the soreness out of your head. And would you believe, Anna, it involves a Brita filter, you know, uh, that we Mm -hmm. use for our water to get a bit nicer taste of water. And what he's suggesting is if you put your your liquor of choice in this uh, filter, it might actually take some of those uh, additives out that can contribute to... uh, it's to it and it also apparently uh, makes it taste a bit nicer as well I have okay. not tried this myself Anna but that's if anybody wants to try it you can email us and let us know here get on at supercharged.rte.ie as always thank you so much for keeping us in the loop and if you want any more information about chronic pain you can visit chronicpain.ie or about stroke at irishheart.ie sadly that is it for another series of Supercharged the past few weeks have just flown by but we've covered a lot from bloating to panic attacks sex and everything in between you can listen back to this show or any of the shows from this series or even from series one by going to rte.ie forward slash supercharge or on the rte radio player app huge thanks to my team here for their brilliant work as always John Daly Louise Nucredon Hugh Hick Owen Sweeney and Sheila Nivoil I also want to say thank you to all of my wonderful guests and experts over the past past number of weeks on Supercharged. But the biggest thanks goes to you for trusting me with your personal stories and for your voice notes and for your questions and just being brave enough to share them with me. Like I've loved chatting to you all. 
Because that's what this show is all about. It's the shared experiences and just coming together to open up conversations about different aspects of our health and well-being. So thank you. And if you have any feedback or you know what, you just want to get in touch, you can email us supercharged at rte.ie or you can reach out to me on Instagram at Anna G. Cork. And sure, look, even let us know who you would like us to cover in the future too. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday evening. But for now, mind yourselves and mind each other. Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. Supercharged with Anna Geary is an Ojo production for RTE Radio 1.